Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Pentecost today, the, the day that we celebrate the coming of the Spirit. And I'm going to read the story of the coming of the Spirit from Acts chapter 2, and I'll read all 21 verses uh, that capture this part of the Pentecost story. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and a bunch of other people, all hearing these in their own language. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says... I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. There are a handful of things, it seems to me, that happen in life that permanently change practically everything. And these events are reasons to celebrate. Graduations are an example, no matter what happens in the future. Uh, there is the accomplishment of graduation to look back on and to hold on to. The birth of a child is obviously a game changer. The world never looks the same after a child. Perspective, focus, values all drastically change. Getting a dog permanently changes things, especially a puppy dog. And we'll just leave it at that and move on. But when Jesus walked this earth, when he was in the flesh, he could not be in two places at the same time. But about ten days after he ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit came upon the first disciples, and a fresh work of God began in them and in the world. And the coming of the Spirit 2,000 years ago permanently and drastically changed everything at the individual level, at the communal level, and at the cosmic level. And so today, we celebrate the day of Pentecost, the day the Spirit of God came and filled 
the first disciples, and the church was born on that day. Pentecost is a Greek word, and it means 50, and the coming of the Holy Spirit happened 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, and Acts 2 that I just read describes the scene. There was a large crowd of God-fearing Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate what was called the Feast of Weeks. This feast commemorated the giving of the law to Moses and to the Israelites after they had come out of Egypt, kind of God with them through his guidance and through his instruction. And the Feast of Weeks also commemorated the wheat harvest, God's provision of food. The Feast of Weeks was one of three pilgrimage feasts celebrated by the people of Israel. So whomever could, uh, wherever they were, they would make this long journey to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And it was a celebration. Food, laughter, drink, ESPN. The whole bit was part of this celebration that was happening in Jerusalem. And all of it was in honor of God's presence and God's provision for his people. And Luke says, the disciples were gathered together in a house while this feast of weeks was happening in the city of Jerusalem. And then suddenly, Luke says, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire resting on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in different languages. Luke uses imagery quite familiar to Jewish people. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was now and then described as wind. The word literally meaning the breath of God. It was also described as fire. What Moses saw in the burning bush and the pillar of fire that protected the Israelites when their backs were against the Red Sea as the Egyptians bore down on them. Luke draws upon the rich history of Israel, in other words, when God comes to his people. And in Acts 2, we're told his spirit fills the house where they were and fills each follower of Jesus in the house. Now just pause for a second. God of the universe coming to rest upon and in human beings and filling them with his presence and with his power. Is this just crazy stuff or what? God coming to his people and filling them with his very life, his very breath, his very presence. Is this some sort of make-believe world we poke our heads into now and then, like a Harry Potter story? Or has God come to dwell in us and among us through his Holy Spirit. You know, when you just think of it, God coming and dwelling in us through his Spirit, there's something in the human soul, I think, that just aches for this to be true. However crazy it sounds, however out there it may seem, there's something in us that awakens, aches, and longs for this actually to be true. We want to know intimately that God has in fact come to us and does in fact dwell in those who follow him. 
So today we finish our Eastertide series by celebrating the coming of the Holy Spirit and the victory we now have because the Spirit is with us and the Spirit is in us. He now empowers those who belong to Him. He lives in them, animating them to follow His way and to do His will. So today is about God's power in us. God's power in the church. God's power in the world through the presence of His Spirit. This is one of those handful of things that changes everything. The power of God at work in us and at work among us. So first of all, the power of God to be changed. Throughout Israel's history, God pursued His people because He wanted to dwell with them and be their God and lead them to live His way. And we see this right from the start. Adam and Eve in the garden, God walked with them. He then sought out Abraham and he asked Abraham to relocate from Iraq to Palestine in order to make him into a great nation. And through this nation, God says to Abraham, he is going to bless the entire world. This is all in Genesis 12. In the Exodus, out of slavery in Egypt, God anoints Moses And through Moses, he leads the people toward the promised land where God would be their God and he would dwell with them. And he would lead them. So there's this theme throughout the Old Testament. God with his people. God dwelling with his people. People familiar with the stories of Israel's history were familiar with the Spirit of God anointing kings and leaders and prophets People like Moses and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah, kind of this superstar Hall of Fame cast of people in Israel's history. And every last one of the folks on this Pentecost Sunday would have known about those special people that the Spirit of God anointed to speak God's Word, to do His will, and to lead the people in God's way. But on the day of Pentecost, when the church was gathered together in Acts chapter 2, something new happened. Luke says the Spirit of God came upon each disciple. And each person, each disciple, was filled with the Spirit. And each manifested the Spirit's presence by speaking in a different language. And none of them was a king or leader or prophet or preacher or a missionary. They were unschooled. They were regular people with regular jobs and families and challenges who had found something compelling in the person of Jesus. And His Spirit came upon them and filled them and empowered them. And there's no doubt They had little clue what was happening, but they were caught up in something of individual and communal and cosmic significance. And at this individual level, when the Spirit came upon these first disciples, they were changed by the encounter. And we see this change vividly in the Apostle Peter. He always had good intentions And he seemed to always have a good heart. But his mouth often wrote checks his will could not cash. And so Peter often failed. And he failed big and he failed boldly. Peter was a contradiction. Less kindly, he was a hypocrite. One minute his faith had him walking on water. The next minute his fear had him sinking under the water. A few weeks prior 
to Pentecost, a little girl pointed her finger at Peter and accused him of having been with Jesus. And Peter got very defensive, and he vigorously denied even knowing who Jesus was. And the Bible indicates he kind of fell apart after this. Saw himself, maybe for the first time, realized his mouth would make statements his will could not follow up on. Guilt seems to have crushed him in the aftermath of his failure. Then Pentecost happened. And the Holy Spirit, we're told, filled each of these disciples, including Peter. And in Acts chapter 2, he and the other 11 disciples stand in front of this diverse crowd of people, and Peter explains exactly what is happening. And he tells the crowd that Jesus is God's resurrected son, and he is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah and King and Lord. And then Peter looks these people in the eyes, and he calls them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and he warns them, and he pleads with them to believe. This is a slightly different Peter than the one who buckled under the accusations of a little girl. And he's a slightly different Peter because the Spirit was now in him and the Spirit was in the process of changing him. Now, to be clear, the Holy Spirit did not instantly heal every bit of Peter's brokenness. But the Spirit changed him. Peter was different. Something new was happening in him. And this journey of transformation began. One writer says it this way, the Spirit of God reaches into the spirit of the person to do the core of his work. There is a divine person, the Holy Spirit, continually at work in us, who acts directly on the deepest parts of us. Spiritual formation is the shaping work of the divine Holy Spirit carried out according to the will of God the Father for the purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. Spiritual formation, in other words, is the formation of our spirit, our inner being, by God's spirit. It's just good to pause here for a second and think about this. Spiritual formation is the formation of our spirit our inner being, the depths of who we are, our core, by God's Spirit. So how is the Spirit shaping us these days? What good work is He doing in our subterranean regions where our real self is? How is He forming our inner being so it is like the inner being of Jesus Christ Himself? You probably know this, but this is what I care about almost more than anything. And this is who we are as a church almost more than anything. This is what burns in me for me and for you. That Christ and his character and his beauty and his love and his goodness and his grace would be formed in us. This may not make us the talk of the town. But this is what I care about. The Spirit of God at work in the deep places of our being, shaping, forming, transforming, changing us 
breaking up the hard ground over our heart, setting us free from old ways. Now, our personality and our style and certain God-given aspects of who we are will remain through this change process. But the Spirit empowers real change. So what's He doing in you these days? It's always a good question. What is the Spirit up to in you? Secondly, as we think about power, let's talk about power to manifest the kingdom in the midst of the world. Biblically speaking, church is not something we go to. It is not something we attend 2.24 times a month. Church is something we are, biblically speaking. A kind of people. A called out people. To use the actual meaning of the word church as it is used in the New Testament. A community of people bound together by the resurrected Jesus. Put it this way. A community of people who are called out from their sin and broken and fallen and messed up ways to be situated right in the midst of a sinful and broken and fallen and messed up world, to be present in this world, to be engaged with the sinful and broken and fallen and messed up, and to manifest the kingdom of God the reality of God, individually manifested and communally as a church. Manifest the reality of the kingdom. Manifest the reality of God's presence in us and with us and among us. Acts 2 is the birth of the church. Forgive me, but in Acts 2, we are reporting live from the delivery room. We've got umbilical cords. We've got wailing. We've got clueless fathers. We've got it all. This is where this thing we do, church, begins. Or to use these words, heaven comes to earth in Acts chapter 2 in a sudden, surprising, transforming, and empowering way, and the church is born. Luke tells us the whole church was gathered together in a house, in a room, when suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So just leave that up there. The Spirit of God filled the room, notice, where the church had gathered. Heaven came to earth, and these two realms we so often separate, heaven's up there, earth is down here, are all of a sudden co-mingling. And then verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The Spirit of God comes to the world then by coming upon the disciples. Now, the disciples are in a room. They're in a house when the Spirit comes. But then what happens is the disciples then leave the house where they are gathered and they walk out into the streets of this crowded city and that right there is worth our attention. They're in the house, the Spirit comes, the Spirit fills them and they walk out the door 
and into the crowded streets. The Spirit empowers them to walk out the door and into the streets to manifest the presence and the power of the kingdom of God to the broken and to the fallen and to the messed up. So the Spirit comes into the world through the people of God. He doesn't just show up in a random location. He enters the world through you. He enters the world through me. He enters the world through His church. It's called incarnation, infleshing of God. So He is present at Intel and at Micron and in the offices of the state of California and in our neighborhoods and in our schools one could say, to the extent we are manifesting the goodness of his kingdom in those places. See, the Spirit does not extract us out of the world or isolate us from its brokenness or from its sinfulness. The Spirit does not huddle us in a corner. Rather, he empowers us to engage with the world, to be in the midst of the world by and through the power of his spirit. On Pentecost, Jerusalem was packed with people from all over the ancient world, people from every corner of the Roman Empire, and they heard the disciples declaring the good news of Jesus in their own language because the disciples walked out the door. The Spirit orchestrated all of this, obviously. It's not coincidence that when the Spirit came upon the first disciples and when the church was born, all of these people were already in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks. This is God's stellar timing. This is really important. There is power from God in us to be in the midst of this broken world. Not separate from it. Not detached from it. Not hiding from it, not huddling in a corner, and most especially, not afraid of it. And Christ followers, I think, are too often afraid of the world. Instead of being engaged in the world with confidence in the presence and power of God. Intel, Folsom High School, wherever you go tomorrow, whatever you do, the Spirit wants to manifest His kingdom through you. Theologian N.T. Wright wrote this, God doesn't give people the Holy Spirit in order to let them enjoy the spiritual equivalent of a day at Disneyland. The point of the Spirit is to enable those who follow Jesus to take into all the world the news that he is Lord, that he has won the victory over the forces of evil, that a new world has opened up and that we are to help make it happen. And this is the essence of Peter's great sermon on Pentecost. He proclaims Jesus to the crowd. This disciple who wilted under the heat of a little child a few weeks ago stands up and announces the supremacy of Jesus. He is Lord. He is King. Everything changes in the light of his coming. God has a work for each one of us to do around this idea of the proclamation of Jesus as King. God has a work for you. If you belong to him, if you follow him, he has a ministry for you right out the front door in the Jerusalem of your life. Meaning right where we are in our everyday lives, at our jobs, with the people we see every day, at school, in the neighborhood. And that ministry, that work, whatever the particulars may be, involves you proclaiming and manifesting to others that Jesus Christ is king over everything. He is Lord. He is, in fact, the answer. 
Your ministry, your work is to proclaim, demonstrate, and announce that Jesus is what is missing. That he is what every single human being is looking for and longing for, whether they realize it or not. We don't do this abruptly, we don't do this callously, and we don't hammer other people with Jesus. But there is no Christian mission without proclaiming Jesus and manifesting, making known, demonstrating the good way of his kingdom in the details of our lives and of our relationships. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus, here's the phrase, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, he did not rescue us to give us a sweet little life shielded from the ugliness of this world. He rescued us so we would go into the ugliness of this world with a message of hope and with a message of deliverance. And I want us all to remember something. This all started with a ragtag bunch of unschooled, unpolished, everyday dudes and dudettes who were filled with God's Spirit. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about them. We're talking about what they did. We're talking about how when the Spirit fell on them, everything changed. Their lives changed. Their character changed. Their purpose changed. Everything changed. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about it and still talking about how God moved in and through them. This isn't about going out and creating some big project to try to impact others. This is about rethinking our posture toward our actual lives and workplaces and neighborhoods And it's about rethinking what church actually is. What is church? It is a people whose lives and relationships are animated by the Spirit and we manifest the good way of His kingdom so the world discovers an alternative to the brokenness and to the messiness and to the violence and to the hatred, and to the competition, and to the despair, and to the futility, and to the aimlessness. That's what church is. Think of a person in your life. Think of them by name. Someone you see every day, every week. Someone in your life, a friend. Someone at work. Someone at school. If anything, Pentecost should be an inspiration an empowering for us to trust the Spirit and what He's doing in that person whose name is in your head right now. And I want to push us on this and challenge us. Maybe the time has come to trust the Spirit and trust His power and point that person to Jesus. Invite them to consider Him. Raise the God issue in a conversation. Do it with confidence. Not that you're going to have all the words. Do it with confidence that the Spirit is in you and He's empowering you. See, we're playing with fire here. You follow me? We are playing with fire. 
This is either a brilliant fairy tale story you keep coming to listen to, or the fire of the Spirit is in us, and He wants to demonstrate His kingdom through us, right out the front door, in our Jerusalem. And the question is, will we follow? Will we take the risk? Is this real or are we just playing fairy tale here? Will we lean on and lean into the Spirit of God and point other people to Jesus? So thirdly, Pentecost is about power we have now to cling to hope and to have hope. With every passing week, maybe you disagree, but with every passing week, with every day, I click on that little news app on my iPad, hope seems more absurd. As you know, there was another school shooting in Santa Fe. Ten people are dead, 13 are injured, and countless lives are ruined. And playing in the background of this tragedy, I hear the prayer Jesus taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The coming together of these two realms again, that we often separate. Heaven's there, earth's here. Heaven commingled with earth. Jesus telling us, pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom, may it be present, and may the will of the king be done. And here's the question. Is this prayer ever answered? Does hope make sense? Or is it absurd? Is God really good? Look around. Click the news app at your own risk. Is God still in charge? Is he reigning over this world? in any reliable way. Is there really a reason to celebrate the coming of the Spirit? Is God good? Is He powerful? Does He care? There seem to be powers unleashed in this universe. Rulers, we could even say. Sometimes in the form of flesh and blood rulers and kings who commit atrocities Sometimes less visible, but no less powerful. Principalities, the Bible calls it. There seem to be powers, rulers, principalities, and sometimes they seem to be outside of God's eye. But you know something? The Bible, over and over and over again, stirs with a deep and powerful truth. And I want to read just a few places where this deep, powerful truth rumbles and stirs. One place is Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. It's on the screen. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he'll be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In John chapter 18, Jesus is in a conversation with Pontius Pilate, this powerful ruler, this king who had a reign and had terrain and had people who did whatever he said. And Jesus says to this ruler, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Then he says this amazing thing. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In John chapter 19, the conversation continues. And this just twists me 360. He says to Pilate, this ruler, this king, you would have no power if it were not given to you from above. You would have no power if it weren't given to you from God. Romans 13 says there is no authority that has not been given by God himself. Psalm 47, starting in verse 7. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Is anything outside of his watchful eye? The kings of the earth belong to God. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says this, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, Of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And then Paul just gets caught up in the grandeur of it all. And he says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Who's in charge? Does hope make sense? Does hope matter? Should we have hope? These first disciples had a long road in front of them, lots of challenges, lots of defeats, but the Spirit had come. So there was hope. And the Spirit empowers us in the face of all of this chaos and violence and hatred and nonsense. The Spirit of God empowers us to cling to hope, to cherish hope, to hold on to hope, and to celebrate hope even in the midst of the brokenness. It is all being played out under God's eye. Do you believe that? Every last bit of it is being played out 
under God's watchful eye. He is the king over all the earth. He is the king eternal, immortal, invisible. He is the only God. He reigns over all. And here's the thing. And that same God's spirit lives in you if you are his follower. And lives in me. And he dwells in us as a small slice of his people in this world. So we cling to hope. And we celebrate hope. Because the spirit is with us through all of it. Let's pray together. Our Father, on this day, we turn our hearts toward you. We set our mind on things above. We set our hearts on things above. And then we walk out the door into this broken world because you are alive in us and you have empowered us to be your people in this world. And today we recognize and cling to the hope we have because Jesus Christ is Lord over all. And nothing, not a thing, not a ruler, not a king, not a force, not a power, not a principality is outside of his eye or outside of his control. And today we remember that he is king He reigns over all, immortal, invisible, the only God. And so we celebrate him and we hold on to hope as we pray in his name. Amen.